0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. Glad you could join me on this afternoon, or at least it's afternoon here in Santa Barbara, California, where I am doing this live question and answer from. Uh, It's my pleasure now to come to you twice a week on Thursday afternoons and on uh, Monday afternoons, although I don't think we're going to be keeping up the Monday afternoon question and answers for that much longer. Maybe we'll do one or two more, uh, but maybe we'll finish out the month of May with the Monday ones as well, and then just go back to only the Thursday afternoon question and answer time. What we do here is I always begin with a lead question uh, of my own choosing, usually something that's come in by email or a comment on a video or something else. And then we just go to whatever questions people ask in the side chat. And so I'm happy to do that. It's something that I enjoy doing every week and I'm glad that you could join me. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. I'm a pastor uh, for many years. And I'm a Bible teacher, and uh, maybe something that makes me at least a little bit unique among folks is that I have a written commentary on the entire Bible that's absolutely free on the internet, and some people find it helpful. So um, that's something that God has given me, Unexpected Ministry, that I'll talk about that in just a few moments in answering to our lead question But let me get into our lead question right now. Uh, It's from Rufus and Rufus asks this question. He says, will you tell us about yourself, how you learn to study the Bible and learn to write commentaries? What's your favorite Bible? Okay, well, I'm going to answer these questions here from Rufus. Thank you, Rufus, for answering the questions. And I guess if I would title this any particular thing, I would just simply title it, How I Learned the Bible. How have I learned the Bible? Um, I mean, look, I, I suppose you can always find people who know more about the Bible than you do. I mean, there's certainly people who know more about the Bible than I do. And there's people who know less about the Bible than I do or that you do. You know, we're always somewhere in the middle. There's somebody further along and there's somebody not so far along compared to everybody. But whatever it is that I've learned, how have I come to whatever Bible knowledge that I have? Well, let me give you a few ways. Um, First of all, and without trying to sound too spiritual about this, I'll just simply say that the Holy Spirit teaches us in his word. Uh, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. That's in John chapter 16, verse 13. And I think that's something just important that we need to understand, that when we seek the Lord, when we prayerfully and um, engagingly, so to speak, read our Bibles, the Holy Spirit is there to teach us. So I believe it's just a promise from God that the Holy Spirit would lead us into truth. As well, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 says that the Holy Spirit teaches us spiritual wisdom. And I believe that that is gained for us primarily through our understanding and learning of the Word of God. So the number one way I would say about how I study the Bible and how I've learned what I've learned in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit has taught me. Now, I, I don't want to say that in the sense of saying, oh, well, nobody else can teach me. No, I'll talk about that in a minute. I've learned from many people as well, or that I'm looking on some high spiritual plane. The Holy Spirit teaches me. Maybe he doesn't teach other people. I don't believe that at all. I believe that the Holy Spirit is there to teach believers according to the promise of God. And why I don't think that that is exclusively for me or other people who teach the Bible I do think that it is something certainly that I am included in. So the Holy Spirit teaches. Number two, I think it's also true that God gives gifts, and that is spiritual gifts. And I believe that one of the spiritual gifts that I have is the gift of teaching or preaching. Uh, The Bible mentions that spiritual gift in a few different contexts. And I think that in general, you can't teach uh, what you don't understand. And so obviously, if there is a gift of teaching, I think that there's probably a corresponding gift of learning, of understanding the Word of God. And so I think that part of my learning the Bible, my understanding the Bible, it comes from the common teaching that the Holy Spirit brings to every seeking believer, but it also gives to the fact that um, this may have to do with some of the spiritual gifts that God has given me especially related to the gift of teaching. So that's the first two ways, the Holy Spirit teaching, uh, God giving gifts. Then here's a third thing. I've had some amazing teachers and examples in my life. You know, I came to Christ as a young teenager. I believe I was 13 years old. And the first Protestant church that I ever walked into was a place called Calvary Chapel of Riverside. Uh, I think it was in the 1980s they changed their name to uh, Harvest Christian Fellowship. But the same man is still the pastor there at Harvest Christian Fellowship or Calvary Chapel of Riverside. And that's Pastor Greg Laurie. Uh, I thank the Lord that that was the first Protestant preacher that I ever heard. And that was the first Protestant church that I ever walked into. And it was a great influence on me to see someone like Greg Laurie teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Now, of course, many people know Greg Laurie as a great evangelist, and he is a tremendous evangelist. I think that's an amazing gift that God has given him uh, for the body of Christ and for the world. But don't underestimate Greg Laurie as a Bible teacher, as an expositor. And I just saw him teach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And that was an amazing example for me just on how to read and study the Bible. But then of course, uh, through my influence there at Calvary Chapel Riverside and Greg Laurie, I also came to understand the ministry and received so much from the ministry of Pastor Chuck Smith, who was an amazing Bible teacher and expositor. Again, just emphasizing that idea of understanding the Bible as it's written, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, letting the text speak for itself as much as possible. Of course, nobody does it perfectly, but as much as possible, we should come to the text and let it speak to itself. So some of these amazing teachers and examples I've had have taught me so much. Again, men like Greg Laurie and Chuck Smith, uh, but of course, uh, people who have long passed away as well. Now, Chuck Smith is in heaven. Having gone to heaven maybe, I don't know, eight years ago or so, Uh, But there are many others uh, who have passed on long before. Uh, I've learned so much through the commentaries that I read through guys like Charles Spurgeon and Leon Morris and G. Campbell Morgan and Derek Kidner and so many other great writers and Bible commentators. Look, I've read extensively, and I think I've read from a lot of great Bible commentators and Bible scholars, and I've been very appreciative of that influence. So I think it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think that it has to do with spiritual gifting. I think it has to do with some amazing teachers and examples I've had. But here's a fourth reason why I think I've learned the Bible the way that I have. And again, I'm just trying to be very straightforward with you. I think it's through hard work. Um, I, I don't mind saying that over the many decades that I've studied the Bible, and, and look, let, let's be very honest, a good part of this hard work is begin because that's been my gifting. That's been my calling. I've had the responsibility to teach and preach the Bible. I've had to work hard to prepare and to try to do that well. But again, I, I'm not shy about saying I've put a lot of hard work into this over the years. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 15 says, that we should be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Look, I I think that to really read the scriptures, to really study the scriptures, to really learn from what God has spoken and taught to other great people who have gone before, I think it takes a lot of work. I think you got to be diligent and you need to be a worker who does not need to be ashamed. You know, earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul likened the ministry, uh, this work of, of being a pastor of the ministry to the work of a soldier, the work of an athlete, and the work of a farmer. And let me tell you something that's in common of all of those professions. All of those professions, uh, you have to exert yourself if you're going to succeed. You're never going to be a successful soldier, athlete, or farmer unless you exert yourself. And so... Um, Listen, glory be to God, of course, for it. But I believe that over the years, I've put in a substantial amount of hard work into studying the scriptures. So that's another way that I've had the knowledge. And, and, and then finally, uh, of these reasons, what were the, the Holy Spirit teaching, uh, spiritual gifts given, great examples and, um, and uh, people pouring into me, hard work. And then the fifth one would be simply time look, I've done this a long time. And if you want a comprehensive Bible knowledge, you can't be in a hurry. Now you gotta work hard. You've gotta have a sense that you're gonna get after it, but it's gonna take time. This is something that happens over many, many years. Um, And so we, we, we can't shy away from realizing I'm gonna have to put in a lot of work, And I'm going to have to put it in over a long time if I really want to learn and understand the Bible. Uh, A great story comes from a guy named Darnold Gray Barnhouse. And Barnhouse was a great Bible teacher of a generation, maybe two generations ago. And again, he was really noted for being a great Bible teacher. And one day he was riding on a train This were the days when train travel between cities was more common than uh, airplane travel. So he's uh, traveling on a train and a young man sitting on the seat opposite him noticed that it was Donald Gray Barnhouse sitting right across him. Donald Gray Barnhouse is reading his Bible right across from him. The young man was reading a newspaper and he just kind of put down his newspaper and noticed that's Donald Gray Barnhouse right across the the seat from me. And he says, Dr. Barnhouse, I love your Bible teaching. You're an amazing Bible teacher. How how do you do it? I just want to know, how how can you become a Bible teacher like you? Would you show me the way? And Barnhouse, according to this story, he looked up from his Bible, glanced at the young man who was holding his newspaper, and um, Barnhouse said this, well, you won't get it from reading the newspaper. And then Barnhouse went back to reading his Bible. Now, I believe that's kind of a sharp comment. Maybe it was a little too sharp. I don't know. But listen, the the only way you're going to really learn the Bible is by working and reading the Bible and making it a passion of your life to do this and doing it over a long period of time. All right, let let me quickly get to the other questions that Rufus had. Rufus asked, how did I come to write Bible commentaries? I, I can give you a quick answer to that. Accidentally. Listen, I never set out to write Bible commentary. And there's a sense in which I still don't make that my first intention. This is what I, f- I found out through some very unusual circumstances that what I prepared for myself as teaching notes was helpful to other people as Bible commentary. And those were unusual circumstances, but I think God has had his hand upon it. God has blessed it. Uh, This happens so much through the partnership and the help of the guys from the Blue Letter Bible. I'm very grateful to the people at Blue Letter Bible. Uh, My commentary is available on Blue Letter Bible. Uh, Again, it's a blessed partnership I have with those great brothers and sisters who work at that ministry. Um, But through Blue Letter Bible and through them, I found out that what I prepare for myself as teaching notes is helpful to other people as Bible commentary. And I just have to say that God has used that Bible commentary far beyond any expectation or dream I had. Now, my Bible commentary work is a popular work. It's not an academic work. I I hope that it's serious uh, academically in a scholar sense, but uh, things are not properly footnoted or referred to. Um, no, it is not an academic work on that sense. Uh, it is written for a popular audience, but all I can say is just that it is what it is and God seems to use it. and I'm I'm thrilled uh, that God seems to use this uh, Bible trans Bible commentary work that I've done. Then finally, Rufus asked, what's my favorite Bible translation? My favorite Bible translation is the New King James Version. Now, I don't think it's the only good Bible translation out there. Uh, I think that the ESV is a pretty good translation uh, for the most part. Um, I'm really impressed, actually, with how close the ESV reads to the New King James Version. Matter of fact, in my mind, it reads so closely that I see no reason to change to the ESV. And I don't think that there's any perfect Bible translation, uh, but for several reasons, Uh, because of some of the manuscript uh, backing of the New King James Version. But even more importantly, I think that there is a poetry and a rhythm to the New King James Version uh, that really connects with me. So that is my favorite Bible translation. So Rufus, thank you for your questions. I hope that answers it. Uh, Let me turn now to the questions that have come up in the side chat. Uh, I hope I can get to many of them. I can't make any promises that I'll get to all of them today, but let me start working on these. First of all, uh, Benjamin says, hi, Pastor David. Ben here from Samia, Santa Monica in Mexico. Hey, Ben, God bless you. So glad that you could tune in. I love my brothers and sisters there at Samia, uh, there in Mexico City. Uh, So God bless you with that. Uh, You ask this, what is the most important aspect to keep always in mind when teaching a Bible verse. Blessings, we miss you. Well, thank you for that, Ben. And again, blessings to uh, Pastor Fermin and uh, the whole crew down there in the several different Samia congregations down there in Mexico. But what I just want to say is, what's the most important aspect to keep in mind? I Okay, really two things. First of all, Respect the text of the Bible. What do I mean by that? Well, don't try to make it say something you wish it says, but respect the text of the Bible enough to let it speak for itself. I think it's very important when we're coming to the Bible text, especially if we're coming to prepare a message to preach or teach on the Bible, that we need to come with this attitude. I don't have to make a message from this Bible passage. The message is there. I just need to expose it. That's what exposition of the Bible is. It's exposing what's in the Bible text. So these principles, respect the text, let the Bible speak for itself. I think these are the most important things to keep in mind. Um, thank you for that question there, Ben. Going around, Luis says, blessings from Florida. What about the Antichrist? Where is he going to come from? Would he be a Jew? Luis, I think that we have no definite indication from the scriptures regarding where the Antichrist will come from. Let me say first and foremost, that name Antichrist probably isn't the best name to use for this person that's spoken to us in in the scriptures. Uh, the Bible uses several names of, or titles for this person. He's the man of sin. Uh, he's the beast. He's, I mean, there's several uh, different aspects or, or, or titles given to this person in, he's the prince who will come. Um, I- anyway, this particular person, one of the names given to him is Antichrist. And that just seems to be the name that has stuck in people's minds. So that is what it is, of course. But, um, I don't think we're given enough knowledge on that biblically to say with any kind of certainty. In Daniel, it does say regarding the Antichrist that he will not respect the God of his fathers. And there are some people who have speculated from that that this means that the Antichrist will be Jewish and won't respect. The God of his fathers, the God of the Bible. Again, is that possible? Yes, it's possible, but I think that just that phrase will not respect the God of his fathers. Doesn't be. Doesn't be. Is not enough to sort of guarantee that. Hold on. So um, I, I wouldn't say that that's any kind of certainty <coughs> there in that regard, but um, having to do with where they come from. Again, the the Bible says that. Um, The Antichrist will have authority over the whole world, will be associated with some kind of confederation of nations that some people associate with the uh, European community, other people associate with other things. Um, But there's no definite line on where I think the Antichrist comes from. There's some different speculations. So again, I just think that that's something that the scriptures don't speak to with any great clarity. Uh, Mary, thank you for your kind words about my commentary. Um, Carol asks, will we ever meet your family? Oh, well, Carol, I don't know about that. Uh, Maybe someday I'll do a show together with my wife, uh, Ingalil, if she's willing to do it. I I don't know. I haven't talked to her about it. Uh, That might be a lot of fun to do sometime. Uh, But again, uh, my children are grown. Uh, They're all adult children, all living on their own and doing very well. I'm very blessed by my wonderful children, Aunt Sophie, Nathan, and Jonathan. And um, so I don't know if I'd ever have my kids on the program with me, uh, but maybe sometime I'll introduce my wife to you. Maybe we'll do a show together sometime. Uh, thank you for that suggestion there, Carol. Jose says, hi, Pastor Guzik. Thank you for all that you do. My question is, how can I better understand the concept of predestination and versus such as First Timothy chapter two verse four that God desires all men to be saved. Jose, what what you're asking about is how can we reconcile the idea that God has a plan of the ages that He's working out, and yet um, not everybody's going to go to heaven. We know that, but the Bible says that there's at least a sense in which God desires all men to be saved, as it says there in First Timothy chapter two. Uh, there's other passages scripture that kind of indicate that. How can we reconcile these things that, again, um, we know that not everybody goes to heaven, but that God says that he desires the salvation of all men. How do these things work out? Well, Jose, I'll, I'll just give it to you in this regard. I think the most important principle to keep in mind is that sometimes the Bible speaks to us from heaven's perspective. And sometimes the Bible speaks to us from Earth's perspective or from humanity's perspective. And from heaven's perspective, God knows exactly what he's doing. God is sovereign. He doesn't have any confusion about things. Like he's working out his plan and his purpose. We understand. From a human perspective, we have real choices. And God does not want us to live with some kind of sense of a fatalistic, predetermined outcome to everything and that God is just gonna do what he's gonna do and it doesn't matter what you or I do or anybody else. God does not want us to live that way. We know that. So there's an earthly perspective that God wants us to live and operate with. There's a heavenly perspective that is a comfort and an assurance for us. And we understand that there is absolute definite truth in both aspects, but each aspect has its place. We never use the earthly view to deny the heavenly view, no, God forbid, but we never use the heavenly view to deny the earthly view. There are aspects of truth in each one of these. Now, um, I I remember reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. If you wanted to look it up online, you could. I believe the sermon is titled, Both Sides of the Shield. And in, sermons, in, in Spurgeon's introductory comments to that sermon, he does such an amazing job of describing the human or earthly perspective being like one side of the shield and God's perspective or the heavenly perspective being the other side of the shield, but they're the same shield. They're they're the same thing. And you can't look at both sides of the shield at the same time. One is one side and one is the other side, but they're the same shield. It's a beautiful presentation and explanation of that. And that's really basically the thing that I keep in mind. So therefore, when I'm preaching a passage that emphasizes heaven's viewpoint, and if you want to say, so to speak, God's side of the shield, I preach it with all my might. Then again, if I'm preaching a passage that emphasizes the earthly, or if you want to say man's perspective from things, I'm going to preach that with all my mind. I'm not going to try to use one to undercut the other. Anyway, I hope that's helpful for you, Jose. Uh, let me continue on here. Karina says, praying for you in your ministry. Thank you for that, Karina. Why are Jesus's genealogies so different from Matthew and Luke? Uh, greetings from Mexico City. Okay, Karina, let me explain to you again. God bless you, our uh, viewers and listeners from all around the world. It's such a blessing to have that. Karina, let me just explain to you. And look, I always get it confused in my mind, which one is which. But one of the genealogies traces the lineage of Jesus through Mary, And one of the genealogies traces the lineage of Jesus through Joseph, his adoptive father. So really, that's the reason for the discrepancies. Now, again, you say, well, Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus. Why does it trace his genealogy? Well, because legally speaking, Joseph was Jesus's father in an adoptive sense, so to speak. So there's the lineage through Joseph and there's the lineage through Mary, Uh, each respective um, listing of the genealogy in Matthew and Luke takes one and not the other. And I I would say which one takes one, but I get it often confused and there's just a 50-50 chance that I'd be right. So Karina, that's just the basic answer between the two. Uh, Jose asks again, uh, how can I study the Bible to know more about the true gospel as there are false gospels out there? Can you please share the most important traits of the true gospel? Um, Jose, I'm just going to recommend to you that you take a look at a video that I have on my YouTube channel. I can't remember the exact title, but we're going to put the link to it in the descriptions when we're done with this. And uh, it has to do with the power of the gospel. I think that phrase is used in the title of it. And in that message, I as precisely as I can define what the gospel is and what's important about the gospel. So let me recommend that message to you, Jose. And again, we're going to put the link to that in the description. But listen, the thing to do is just to find good, reliable Bible teachers. I, I would like to think that I am one of those, but there's other good, reliable Bible teachers out there. And just learn from them and uh, read your Bible and read it a lot without an agenda, uh, without trying to impose a theology upon the Bible, but just letting the Bible speak to you. And listen, we're all going to make some mistakes along the way and we'll be corrected by our other brothers uh, along the way. That's okay but we need to keep a focus on just saying, I want to learn the Bible. I want to be a student of God's word. And I want to look to some reliable teachers. But as for defining the gospel, look for that message on my YouTube channel. Okay. uh, Jane asks, David, in Genesis chapter 18, three men visit Abraham. Two are angels. The other is the Lord. So did God appear to Abraham as a man? No one can look at God and live. Okay, Jane, you're asking a great question because we have actually several times in the Old Testament where the Lord, either as directly the Lord or as the angel of the Lord, appears to people in the Old Testament and um, they say, I have seen the Lord that's true of Moses, it's true of Abraham, it's true in some sense of Jacob, it's true of um, Manoah and his wife, it's true of other people in the book of Judges. Listen, this is true. It's true of uh, Joshua there in the early chapters of Joshua. You have these appearances of the angel of the Lord or of Yahweh himself and appearing in some kind of human form. These are known as theophanies, or sometimes they're known as Christophanies, appearances of God or appearances of Jesus Christ before the incarnation of Jesus uh, in Bethlehem, or actually the incarnation itself, you would say it took place in Nazareth, but in, in Israel in the first century. Listen, when it says that no one can look upon God and live, what it means is that no one can look upon God in his glory and live any vision that somebody has had of God in the scriptures is shielding God of the full expression of his glory. And of course, when Jesus appeared on this earth, the glory of God within him was shielded. So when the Lord appeared to people in the Old Testament, obviously his glory was veiled. And this is what we would say. It's no doubt a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus is God and could appear and walk among man during the days of his earthly ministry, so God could appear in some kind of human form before that to certain people and places in the Old Testament. Now, I would regard those as being pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ, not of God the Father, but because it is of God the Father. He is invisible. No man has seen the Father. but Jesus himself is the expression of God. And we would just regard these as pre-incarnate expressions of God. Hope that's helpful for you there. Um, Jose, what is your take on pastors or believers committing suicide? Uh, Last week, I think a pastor from a megachurch perhaps could have committed suicide. The case is still under investigation. Well, Jose, it's very sad uh, when that happens. I think the important thing to say, and again, I think in our question and answer videos, we have a question uh, where I deal with this directly, but just to give a very short answer to it, uh, we we must understand that church, the, well, let me say it clearly, the tradition of some churches has been that anybody who commits suicide automatically goes to hell doesn't matter whatever profession of faith they've had before, but the thinking is something like this. Suicide is a mortal sin because it's the sin of self-murder, and if you've committed suicide, you obviously haven't had time to repent of that sin or go to a priest for confession. Therefore, you're going straight to hell. Um, the Bible doesn't teach that. Is suicide a sin? Yes, it is a sin, and it's a serious sin, um, but ultimately, The sin that takes people to hell is the sin of the settled rejection of Jesus Christ, or maybe more specifically to say, the settled rejection of what the Holy Spirit reveals to us about Jesus Christ. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So it is possible that someone um, can be so troubled, can be so harassed, can be so tormented. Even as a believer, that they would commit suicide. It is a sad thing. It's a tragic thing. And listen, any dear one in our viewing or listening audience, if you are troubled by thoughts of suicide, you need to get help. You need to reach out to a pastor. You need to reach out to a trusted believer. You need to bear your soul about this. Don't be ashamed, but get some help because. You could be walking into a fog and a web of deception that can ensnare you. No, it's it's a terrible thing to commit suicide. It is a sin before God, not the unforgivable sin, but it is a sin. And our hearts go out to people who are so oppressed, so disturbed that they would do this. Um so again, it, it it deserves compassion, but for anybody contemplating it, um, it, this is never ever God that would lead somebody to suicide, never. It, it is a deception coming from the world, the flesh, or the devil. Uh, going on, um, Deborah, uh, what is the significance of Jesus and the vinegar on the cross? Did he take it? Deborah, yes, you're asking actually a very good question. There were two drinks offered to Jesus at the cross or right before the cross. One of them was a special concoction that was given to people as they were or just before they were going to be nailed to the cross. This was sort of a stupefying drink that was given to sort of drug people to help them Endure the torments of the cross. That was offered to Jesus right before he went to the cross, and he refused it. Jesus refused that stupefying drink. He wanted to face the ordeal of the cross with a clear head and not drugged in any way. Then later, as Jesus remained on the cross, just before he gave that great cry, it is finished. That great cry to Telesti. Just before he gave that great cry, the Bible tells us that he was offered, that he received a drink made of sour vinegar and water. Um, this was a particular drink that we know from history that was common among Roman soldiers it was their ancient version of a sports drink or something like that it was thought to be more refreshing and maybe safer to drink than plain water jesus took that drink right before he gave that final cry and yielded his his life to god the father because he wanted to clear his mouth so that he could give that clear cry it is finished the bible says he did that with a great Cry. And he wanted his mouth and throat clear to ring that out loud and clear. Um, it is finished to tell us die, paid in full. So there was an initial drink offered to Jesus that he refused. There was a subsequent drink that he received, and he received it for a particular purpose. Great question there, Deborah. Okay, Agnes asks the question uh, Hi, Pastor David what is your thought on animals dying before the fall? One guy was teaching that animals did die before the fall because that's what God meant by having dominion. Uh, Agnes, I have to say, I can't speak to the specific teaching that you mentioned because I'd want to hear more of it to be able to give a real determination. But it seems that the principle of death was introduced by the fall. Now, again, we can't say this with certainty because it's one of those things we wish the Bible gave us more details. It's possible that the only death that was introduced at the fall was human death. Maybe that's the case. But we're a little more inclined to believe, or at least I am, to believe that the principle of death was introduced by the fall, and that's what was set in motion. Uh, so um again this is one of these areas that we wish the bible told us more about uh, but i think it's fair to say that it's more likely that the principle of death was introduced which again would lead us to believe we, m- many people often ask how long did adam and eve remain in the garden of eden before uh, they sinned and the answer is we don't know but if the principle of death was not introduced until the fall, that would lead one to believe that the fall happened relatively soon. Uh, It couldn't have gone on very long uh, before the fall. So anyway, that's my take on that, Agnes. Uh, Darren asks, uh, James chapter four, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Is James speaking to backslidden believers or to all believers here? What is meant for a born-again believer to draw near? Well, Darren, I would say that he's speaking to all believers. You could even say that he's inviting humanity to draw near to God. There's a principle there, and I think the principle is somewhat universal. When we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Now, we know that behind the scenes, we can't draw near to God unless God has worked in us first. But the bottom line is this, is especially according to our perception, when we draw near to God, God also draws near to us. And that is used as a precious promise, giving confidence to anybody, believer, backslidden believer, people who hasn't believed yet, you draw near to God and God will draw near to you. And again, that's speaking from the, as we've spoken of before, from the earthly perspective, uh, from a heavenly perspective, you'd say, well, God drew near to them first. Well, that's true, but we don't want to take away from the force of what James is saying. We, we can exhort ourselves and exhort one another. Hey, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Now, how do we draw near to God? We draw near to God by listening to his voice in his word. We draw near to God by Worshiping him and praising him. We draw near to God by prayer and seeking him. We draw near to God by hearing his word preached. These are all ways that we consciously draw near to God. It doesn't have to be a mystical experience, it doesn't have to be some crazy experience. No, we draw near to God by the fundamental discipleship works of the Christian life. Let me continue on here. Uh, Broken People says, Lord bless you, Pastor David, reading 1 Corinthians can't help wondering, can the gifts of the Spirit operate in a carnal Christian? Uh, The answer to that is yes. Um, The Corinthians were largely carnal, yet the gifts of the Spirit were operating among them. We need to remember that the gifts of the Spirit are gifts of grace. And we always want to kind of act as if If God is using a person, it's God's stamp of approval upon that person. Whereas the Bible shows that sometimes God will use strange and bizarre and sometimes disobedient people. We don't often talk about it. It's almost uncomfortable to talk about. We we think that if we say, oh, well, God can use disobedient people, then people will be disobedient and God will see. Well, maybe some people will think that way. But if you are a disobedient believer, and God is using you, you are storing up judgment against yourself. Let that soberly warn you. No, we need to carefully consider that um, God can use and even work spiritually through disobedient believers. We have many examples of this. Uh, One great example that comes to mind is, look how the Holy Spirit filled and used King Saul, even when Saul was totally in the flesh. So no, it's within the power and the prerogative of God to use people, even when they're weird. Um, It's one of these mysteries, and one of the ways that God shows that the glory and the honor goes to him, not to the vessel that he uses. Uh, Let me continue on. Abraham says, When preparing for a chapter in the Bible, how do you make sure the way you interpret a text is not off base? Well, Abraham, I would just say this. You do the best you can, letting the word speak for itself, studying the passage, trying to read it for what it is, not for what you wish it is. And then you look at what other people have taught and said, on that's one of the great uses of Bible commentaries. Uh, if you come up with an interpretation of Scripture or an understanding of a passage that nobody else has ever seen in the text, you're almost certainly wrong. <laughs> because again, uh, if it's true, then surely other people have seen it as well. So one of the great uses of Bible commentaries is to use it to compare what we have seen in the text to what God has shown other people in the text and to see if we're on the right track. So I would say the use of Bible commentaries or hearing what other Bible teachers have had to say, uh, sometimes that can be a real encouragement in that regard. Hope that helps you there, Abraham. Jennifer says, Why do you think it came as a surprise to the apostles when Jesus rose from the dead? The Pharisees seemed to expect it by having guards posted and having a sealed tomb. Well, Jennifer, you're exactly right. Uh, In many ways, it seemed that the religious leaders who rejected Jesus believed his promises of resurrection more than his own disciples did. But this is what I want you to understand, is that um, the main reason the disciples didn't believe was that it just says that they were slow to believe, and they didn't listen to Jesus very carefully, and they were looking more for Jesus just simply not to die on a cross but to simply inherit the glory of his kingdom straight off. The the reason they didn't believe in the resurrection was because they didn't want to believe in the cross preceding it. So they couldn't even think about the resurrection. You know, before you can be raised from the dead, you got to die. And when Jesus told them, I'm going to die on a cross and I'm going to rise again, they just kind of couldn't handle that. And so they didn't want to believe it. They kind of forgot about it. They put it in a different category in their minds. The main reason they didn't believe in the resurrection was because they didn't want to believe in the crucifixion that would precede it. Okay, continuing on, Marisol says, hello, pastor, is God also Jesus? I also hear God is the Holy Spirit. Is he all three? If so, why does Jesus refer to God as his father if he is God? Do we pray to God or Jesus as both? Okay, Marisol, you're asking wonderful questions here. Let me give you some answers the best I can. Um, the Bible teaches us that there's one God, one God. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's one God, but that God is in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. How exactly that works? How can there be one God in three persons? Well, that is a bit of a mystery. It is beyond uh, reason. I don't think it contradicts reason, but it's beyond reason. So God the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, sometimes, oftentimes, when we use the word God, we really mean God the Father. That's really what we're referring to. So when Jesus prayed to God, he prayed to God the Father. Uh, but Jesus acknowledged that the Holy Spirit's God, that God the Father was God, and Jesus himself declared that he is God. And as for how we pray, the normal pattern of prayer is to pray to God the Father in the name of God the Son through the empowering and the wisdom given to us by God the Holy Spirit. Now, we can also pray to Jesus. We can also pray to the Holy Spirit. I'm not gonna say that those things are wrong, but the normal pattern given to us in the New Testament is to pray to God the Father in the name of God the Son through the empowering and the wisdom given to us by God the Holy Spirit. I hope that helps you there, Marisol. Fernando asks, What happens if a Christian sins before he dies? Will he go to hell? For example, a Christian gets angry and goes in a rage and then gets a heart attack and dies. Okay, well, Fernando, um, that's certainly possible. And there's no doubt that there have been believers who have sinned and been in compromise. Here's just what we come back to. We are not saved by our holy life. Now, let me say, and this is very important, God wants his children to walk in holiness. God wants us to be a obedient people unto him. And it's not legalism to live a life of obedience before God. God wants to work in this. God has good works prepared for those who love him. This is the life God wants us to live. However, we are not saved by our obedient or holy life. So, if we're not saved by our obedience, we don't lose our salvation by disobedience. It's possible for a person to be a believer and be destined to heaven and yet to sin. And if a person were to happen to die at the moment of that sin, it would be sad. It might be a terrible testimony, but you shouldn't think that it means that they lost their salvation. A man named Alan Redpath said something that has always stuck with me. Alan Redpath said this, that it's possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. Now, that should be a shame for any believer, but it's possible. And uh, so we just need to believe that it is true that we're not saved by our holy lives. We won't lose our salvation because we've sinned. Um, now, none of that should take away from our passion for holy living and our desire for obedience, but we just need to be able to put things in the right places as the Bible presents it to us. All right. I'm afraid that I'm only going to be able to take a few more questions. I see several more questions here, but I'll just take a few more and maybe more we'll get to later. Um, you're welcome, Marisol. Um Deborah Knox says, how do I purchase a Blue Letter Bible with your commentary? Okay, Deborah, I need to do some explaining here. The Blue Letter Bible is not a print Bible that you can buy. Blue Letter Bible is a website that has amazing Bible resources that are absolutely free. Go to blb.org, blueletterbible.org, or just do a Google search for Blue Letter Bible and you'll be led to an amazing Bible resource that has not only Bible commentaries like my own and commentaries of dozens of others, great Bible commentaries, but it has amazing Greek and Hebrew resources and so many other Bible translations and resources. It is a remarkable Bible resource, but it's not a print Bible. It's an online Bible resource. Um, Layla says, love your Bible commentary, Pastor Layla from Kenya. Hey, fantastic, Layla. Love it that we have uh, viewers and listeners from Africa. Um, Mary says that she just purchased her first New King James Version Bible, and I love it. Well, that's a translation I prefer as well. Um, Yes, thank you. Um, Dean says, and I'll end with this one, I found your Bible commentary website, Enduring Word. It's amazing, and I use it every day. Thank you. Well, You're very welcome for that, Dean. I'm going to end with that particular comment, but I just want to say I do have a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter commentary on the entire Bible in English, in Spanish. The entire New Testament commentary is translated into Arabic, and almost the entire New Testament commentary is translated into Chinese. And we have scripture portions in several other languages um, it's all available for free at Blue Letter Bible. Um, dot, no. <laughs> it is available at Blue Letter Bible, the English and the Spanish, but all those translations and the most up-to-date versions of my commentary are available at enduringword.com. Again, that's enduringword.com. Thank you so much for joining me for today's question and answer. I'm sorry if I didn't get to your question. It's just, um, I've got other things to do today and I can't spend all day here on this, but I'm grateful for the time that I could spend. I'll be back with you Monday, uh, again, 12 noon Pacific time, whatever that is for you in your particular time zone around the world. It is a great blessing to have so many viewers from around the world. Uh, That's one of the things that really cheers my heart because um, I believe that God is doing a great work all around the world. And I look for him to do greater and greater work. Thank you for your prayers for this ministry. Continue to pray for it. God has shown his goodness in the past and we expect him to keep doing it, but we know it's because people pray. And I hope you'll be one of the people who pray for our work. God bless you. And I'll see you again the next time we have a live question and answer video. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.